Welcome to the Walk With Me podcast. I'm Pastor Stephen Bond from the Vine Church in Chapel Hill, Tennessee, and I'm excited that you are walking with me. What we do each day is we look at about three chapters of Scripture that I'm just organically reading through in my time with the Lord, and we're going to discuss them for around 20 minutes. You're going to get the most out of this if you read these chapters individually, but hopefully together we'll be able to hear the voice of the Lord as we're meeting each day. I'm stepping, I'm stepping out on your word. I'm stepping, I'm stepping out on your word. I'm stepping, I'm stepping out on your word. Today's passage is from Song of Solomon, chapters 1, 2, and 3. This is our spiciest (laughs) book of the Bible. And um, it's interesting that it's in it's in the book of it's it's interesting that it's in the Bible. It wasn't that long ago I was actually reading there are some people that have removed it from the Bible um which is not correct. It should not be removed from the Bible. But there are some people that do not consider it inspired. And I think that's because they don't have the ability to understand it. And I get and I and I get that because it's a difficult book. It's actually unlike any other book of the Bible that you'll read. It's really not even another one that we could closely compare it to because it is a book. It is a collection of poems. Um, So kind of like Psalms, but this is a collection of poems that actually kind of have a flow. There's sort of a story being told, but it's kind of like we're jumping to different scenes of the story, almost like you're watching a play. And at the end of one, it just kind of like the curtains close and then opens up the next one. And um, it's all about two lovers and their pursuit and their infatuation and their intoxication with one another. And um, there's two ways in which we can take this this song, I guess you could say, to correct theology is to say three ways, but it's 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 kind of two. First way is understanding it as relationship between um, Israel and God, and Israel as the woman and God as the man, and like understanding just the pursuit that they have towards one another. The second way would be. Uh, and that's why I say these kind of are two and one, because it, the Bible says that we are now Jews, um, children of God. We've been grafted in. And so, but the second way would be the church, the bride of Christ and, and the bridegroom, which is Jesus. So you could see it in that way. And then the third way is taking it uh, as just that of the relationship, the the God-ordained relationship between um, two lovers, husband and, and wife or the betrothed to be husband and wife in their pursuit of one to another. I don't think that we have to pick which of these. The God's word transcends um, our simplicity. I think we can, I think as wise um, students of God's word, I think we're best to have our eyes open to all three of those as we read and apply each one of them. Because everything, even if we just take it as the relationship between man and woman and husband and wife, we, we, we have to understand that everything God made, he's given to us to, so that we could better relate to himself, right? So a tree is not just a tree. 
right? It has roots that grow down deep that teach us about how we're to be grounded, right? It has fruit that grows from it that shows how we're to, you know, how we're to grow in Him. Everything around us has been given as an illustration so that we could better relate to Him. So even the love between husband and wife, however intimate and provocative, you know, it might feel and vulnerable, its relationship shows us the pursuit, it's, it's the closest thing we could understand of God's pursuit of us, it is like that of one who's drunk on love and, um, and the intimacy of oneness, which is exactly what Jesus prayed, that we would be one as he and the Father are one and that we would all be one together. Whether there's, no, there's no other place of oneness that we understand other than marriage. You know, you don't have oneness even with your children. They come out of you and they live apart from you. But the husband and wife go into one another and they're unified together, right? If that makes you uncomfortable for me to say that, you're not going to like the next <laughs> few days of of this of this time that we have together because it's it is a provocative book. There's just no way to, it would just cheapen it to not read the very scriptures that it states and try to understand them the best that we can. But, um, so yeah, so let's just have that in mind as we read through these, these chapters and, and pick apart little different notes is that let's relate it to the love that we're supposed to have for our, our spouses. And let's also try to get a better understanding of that that love is a depiction still of a greater love, which is the love of the bridegroom for the bride, which is us. And so it starts off by saying, and this is a mysterious book. We, we pretty, we're pretty confident everywhere that Solomon wrote it, but sometimes we're not even sure if he really wrote it about himself. Maybe he just wrote it as a poem about two lovers, and, and that's why he's kind of mentioned at random spots, but that it's not like definitive that he's even the main character in it, you know, but that we're, that's not, that's not extremely essential to the context of it, but just an interesting note. Um, verse number one, Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. She, and this, like I said, it's written like a play, like it identifies who's speaking and then they speak. So this is the woman of the story. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out, therefore virgins love you. Draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. I did this years. I did. I forgot. Just now reading, I just remembered. I did this book years ago when I was a youth pastor. We, <laughs> I did this book at at our house, um, as like a small group with our youth, like our youth group, and we would assign the roles to different people. One person would represent she, another person would represent the other, the extra voices, and then there was a person playing a man, and it was incredibly uncomfortable for them because these lines are so provocative. But, but. It's it, we shouldn't shy away from teaching, especially not our children, but teaching anyone about the intimacy of love. See, the world has tainted our vision, and, and it's it, it 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 regards intimacy as dirty, right? Because and that's only because of what they've done to it. God made intimacy as beautiful in the original design. Man and woman were naked before each other, and they were unashamed. Right, And it was only the serpent's work that caused the shame. And he's still causing shame to this day regarding sex and intimacy. Whereas the Bible speaks very 
very uh, confidently, hey, you know, be intoxicated by your lover at all times. You know, let take take delight in your lover's breast and, you know, all this kind of stuff that makes us kind of blush and we go, whoa, what's that doing in here? And it's like, oh, that's right. You're the God who made sex. You're the one that created this as a gift for me. Hollywood didn't make this up. They've just abused it and distorted it. They've made, they've tried to make financial gain off of the good thing that God made. They've distorted it. And um, so we have to get back to a, a pure place isn't a place of where we're, you know, um, you, we we don't talk about sex. I mean, we have to, of course, talk about it in, in its right way. But it's the, the pure place is not where we it, we we deny that that sex is good. Uh, why would we let? Why should we let Satan have something that God made? Okay, you know, and and in the Christian marriage, I've said this for a while. It always makes people uncomfortable. Um, so it's easier to say it on a podcast. <laughs> But the Christian marriage should not be boring and sexless. That's an insult to God's creation. He made sex and gave it to the to the Christian marriage to to the to the husband and to the wife. He didn't make it for the prostitute. He didn't make it for the promiscuous. He didn't make it for teenagers. Okay, he made it for the for the bride and for her groom. And that's why it says repeatedly in Song of Solomon, "Don't awaken love until the time is right." Because it wasn't to be just hastily gone into because because you're infatuated. It was actually to be intoxicated and to wisely choose the right time in which we awaken it. Because once we awaken it, it's hard to put it back in its bottle because it's so jealous and it's so strong. Love is incredibly strong. It makes people do wild and crazy things and sell everything they have and give up everything and burn every bridge. And, and it's, it's, it's a powerful thing, love is. And so we're to awaken it at the time, at the right time, when we're devoting ourselves one to another until death shall part us. We're, devote, we're yoking ourselves together, not just in our bodies, but in our lives. We should consider all that wisely. But the Christian marriage isn't one where, you know, you think about even the simplicity of Hollywood and how they've tried to make all their jokes and their puns, and it's in all of their TV shows and all of their movies, like sex is for the single and the dating, and it's exciting, and it's adventurous, and it's old, and it's boring, and it's and it's um, it's occasional, you know, when you're in, in a, when you're in the marriage chambers. And that, that makes me sick. I mean, seriously, that, that is so against God's design. Marriage shouldn't even be, it shouldn't even be woke up until the marriage chambers. And then in the marriage chambers, it should be exciting and passionate and intoxicating in that place alone. You know, and, and so it, it's just, we have to get back to that and remember that it's not for, for the world to have. It's for God's people to have because he made it for us so that we could experience this, this powerful thing that's unlike anything else in the world, which is love. And so she says, your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Others. These are the voices of friends or people that are near the situation of these two lovers. We will exult and rejoice in you. We extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. So it's just an affirmation, like or a confirmation. Yes, you're you're very very lovesick. <laughs> we support what you're. We support your lovesickness. Now the woman speaks again. I am very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me. 
because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where your pasture, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? So she's essentially saying she's had to work. She's she's been out in the fields. You know, she hasn't been laid up and you know just fanning herself and a fair skin. She's been out into the fields and working. And she said that basically her mother's sons or her brothers were cruel to her to make her do that. She hasn't been respected. So don't look upon her weakness, basically, which just shows the vulnerability of love, right? Because it's like, I'm exposing all of myself to you, but don't judge me for it. You know, this is the, this is what's led to this darkness of skin, which would have been a cultural thing would would have it would have revealed that she was almost like a maidservant or or someone that you know because she's had to work and serve she hasn't you know that was kind of a tell of what kind of status that you had was the was your your complexion it showed how hard you had been working under the sun and she's like don't judge me because my skin is dark because i've been working hard i had no choice in the matter and um you know so it's just that there's so much in this book where you could just really dissect it of like i said it's like man when you when you're when you're embracing someone in love you're you're just you're just laying all your cards out before them so to speak you're 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 putting everything on the table and you're just saying you know this is who I am, you know, and um, and so then he speaks and he says, if you do not know, oh, most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tent. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. And he's just saying, you are, you're, you're beautiful to me. I'm, I'm in love with you. And um, he compares her to, you know, all of the imagery in this is strange, but it's cultural. You know, so some of this stuff we would never think to compare our loves to, but you just have to understand it's, 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 it's allegory. It's, it's words that are being spoken that's for imagery purposes that would have made more sense in those days. In our, in the way that we would equate to people, you know, wouldn't make sense either, you know, to, to, to their time, but it, it's just trying to portray with as strong of language as they can their infatuation towards one another. And so, uh, she said, while the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyard of Engedi. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. This is the man speaking. Your eyes are doves. And then she speaks. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. He speaks and says, as a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. She speaks and says, as an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit are sweet to my taste. He brought forth me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustains me with raisins, refreshes me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my hand, and his left hand is under my head. And his right hand embraces me. I adore you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you stir, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And so again, they're just kind of trading off back and forth, just how in love that they are with one another, and just how passionate they are with one another. And you know, um, 
you know, can I just be honest? It's sad that a lot of people get get married and they've and they've chosen it like it was a business decision or because of a culture, because they felt like they had to, or you know, uh, even religiously because they felt like it was what they were supposed to do because it's they weren't they were trying to right a, a wrong, you know. And it's sad because love is just God's plan for love is so much more than that. He he's not chosen that you find someone that you could tolerate for the rest of your life. He's he's chosen someone that you would say to them, man, you're like an apple tree among the trees of the forest. You know, like you're you're supposed to see your spouse as like the apple of your eye. Because here's the thing is, when you find that person and you experience that love for them, then you become a permanent fixture in their life, a a permanent conduit of the love of God meeting them. Because that's how the Father sees us. Yet Yet it's difficult for us to see everyone the way that He sees us. But when we choose someone whom we love in this way, and then we marry them, and we dote on them, and we pursue them all the days of our life, it makes our understanding of the Father's embrace to us more relatable. And people, there's two there's two situations that make it very hard for people to understand God's love, and they're both within the family. People, A, is people that have never had good relationship with their fathers, or their mothers, but even more specifically with their fathers, they have a difficulty understanding God's love because they have no place to relate it to. And the second is those that have never been truly, um, madly, deeply, like (laughs) Savage Garden said, I think, (laughs) they've never been truly, madly, deeply in love. And so they don't understand how the love of the bridegroom could be to the bride and the bride to the groom. And so they don't understand this place of intimacy because a lot of people, we have a lot of marriages that are not intimate. And when I say intimate, I don't mean they're just sexless. I mean, they're not intimate, meaning everything's not bare. Everything's not exposed. Okay. And that's another beautiful thing about the, about the about marriage is remember God's original design. Remember the Garden of Eden. Everything was bare. Everything was exposed. Everything was intimate. Well, now we live in a fallen world. And so we cover ourselves. We cover ourselves everywhere except where? The marriage chamber. We like, it's so crazy, guys. Like we go back to Eden in the place of marriage. It's the only place where without any kind of shame, we can truly be naked, like truly be bare and be yoked to our beloved, right? And have no guilt and have no shame and just experience the way that God originally intended that we were to live. That's the power of it. You know, and the world cannot experience, they don't experience that with their one night stands and going from person to person. They don't experience that with the people that they're dating and they're going over to their apartment and they're experiencing this tainted version of sex. And then they're going back to their own homes. They don't experience what it feels like to go back to the garden again, where there was no shame and there was no guilt and there was no condemnation. It's just me and my beloved and we're bare and we're exposed and we're intimate with one another just in the way that God intended it to be, right? 
There's something so pure and exciting about that. And so our, we've, we've just watered this down by just marrying whoever. Like, oh, you're, you'll marry me? Okay, I'll marry you. Do you love me? Well, I can tolerate you. See, when you get married in that way, you, you already have put yourself at a disposition. You put yourself at a, at a poor disposition to be able to relate to the reckless love of God that fights for you and pursues you and chases you down and loves you because you've married this person that just tolerates you. So you just assume that God tolerates you too, right? And then you had a father that tolerated you, you know, and you assume that that's who the father is to you. And it's not. The father is, he he is the father that sits down and pulls you up onto his lap and squeezes you tight. He is the lover that pursues you and thinks that everything about you is wonderful and amazing and altogether lovely. And that's why it's important that our marriages be the way that they're supposed to be. That's why it's important that our relationship with our children be the way that it's supposed to be, because these things are really just helping us to relate to who God the Father and who Jesus the Bridegroom is, right? And so, you know, then it goes into chapter 3, and it's just talking about... Um, She's the the bride is gone out and she's she's looking for she's pursuing her husband. She's walking around the street and she's she's just yearning for him. Yet she repeats again, you know, we we don't stir up or awaken love until it pleases, and. Um, and so, you know, as we're kind of ending just these three chapters today, you know, I just want, I just want us to kind of, you know, for those that are single listening, if there's anyone single that's listening, man, read this book and look for this love. I mean, the person needs to absolutely be head over heels in love with Jesus or don't even give them the time of day, period, or your marriage will fail period, okay? But now if they're madly in love with Jesus, look for them to be madly in love with you, like this kind of, she says, I'm sick with love. Look for, like, how do I know who to marry? Well, they're going to be love sick over Jesus, they're going to be love sick over you, and you're going to be love sick over them, and then get married real quick. <laughs> this, is, this is just me, you don't have to take my advice, but get, get married real quick so that you don't awaken love until the time is right, right? That That's just my advice advice for it, right? You know, I have a problem with these three-year-long engagements. I go, listen, you guys aren't, you guys are, you've already either awoken love already and this whole thing is, is kind of rocky, or you're not lovesick enough over each other because I don't know how you can be betrothed to someone for three years if you're really badly in love with them, right? So, you know, for that, that's to those who are single. To those that are married, don't forget that this is still the assignment on your marriage, okay? This wasn't, this isn't just for the betrothed. This is for the beloved. This is for those that are yoked together. Take your marriage back to Eden again, to the garden. Get it back to this intimate place where you're one with your beloved and you delight in her and she, de- and, 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 and you delight in him and start praying this level of intimacy and intoxication back into your marriage again because it's what God wants. It's what God wants. Don't let the world think that it's silly or that it's or that it's that it's that it's theirs. Let's take it back from the hands of the enemy who says sex is mine. No, it's not. You're you're nothing but a counterfeit devil. You're trying to steal the good thing that God made and claim it as your own. But let the church take it back. Let let us be known for our intoxication again for our lovers, for 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 the bride and the groom. 
Let's start as we're understanding that, and then let's remember as we're, as we're just ending this first portion of Song of Solomon, that in the midst of all of this, this is how, this is how the bridegroom loves me, his bride who's not perfect, whose skin is dark from the world and the things that I've been exposed to that I shouldn't have been. Yet he sees me as altogether lovely anyway.